0: And we'll get back to that. One of the first places or scenes in which we see that term being used in the New Testament is in the birth narratives of Jesus Christ. And if you turn to Luke chapter 2 and verse 10, you'll see it was used there in the angel's address to the shepherds. In Luke 2.10 we read, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So there's that word joy, and one of the first times we come into contact with it. It comes up again in Matthew 2.10. Interesting, Luke 2.10, Matthew 2.10, in the reference this time to the wise men. In Matthew 2.10 it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And so the term comes up again here in that scene. Now, according to Strong's exhaustive concordance, the meaning of joy is defined as a state of cheerfulness, that is, calm delight, gladness, greatly or exceedingly joy, full, or joyfully, or joyfulness, or joyfulness. In its verbal form, The meaning is stated to be this, it's a primary verb, to be full of cheer. That is, calmly, happy, or well off. Impersonal, especially as a salutation, or a meeting, or parting, be well, on meeting, or parting, be well, farewell, be glad, Godspeed, greeting, hail, joyfully, or rejoice. Now, in looking at these two definitions, you'll see that one thing that they have in common, whether we're talking about it in its verbal form or in any other form, is calmness. It involves a calmness of spirit that allows for cheerfulness. you can see how uh, this especially applies in the case of the shepherds, for example, who were trembling with fear and uh, were described as being mega terrified That's a sort of literal translation there of the expression. But they were terrified when this all began to happen and unfold before them. And the angel doesn't say, you're already a mess emotionally. Add to your petrified condition an agitated and uncontrollable spirit of joyful abandonment. He doesn't say that. He says, you're already agitated. You're already disturbed. But be calm. And rejoice. And that is a, a calming statement on the heart part of the angel. Now, it's just the opposite of the idea of being agitated or um, burning up or somehow out of control. It's be comforted and be calmed because of this joyful news or by this joyful news. And that's what the angel. Commands. Now, charismania is a relatively new term. It's adopted by what we would call historic Orthodox Christianity to describe the more extreme elements of what has been generally termed the charismatic movement. It uh, is the marriage of the word joy with the word mania, which is used to describe, in Greek, mental illness marked by periods of great excitement, or euphoria, delusion, or overactivity. So you're putting together this joy that is overly excited, euphoric, delusional, and hyperactive, is the way we might put it. So you can see that these things, the joy that the Bible calls for, and the charismania, stand in logical opposition to one another. The charismatic movement has a long history, but its most troubling manifestation is the extremes flowing out of what are termed its three doctrinal pillars. And they're there for you in the notes. The prosperity gospel that equates righteousness with wealth, the seed your greed doctrine, And the positive confession, speaking your miracle, that is, naming it and claiming it. Now, a lot of things spring out from and grow out from those three pillars, doctrinal pillars, as we might say. Now, there's so much available on these subjects and their refutation that anyone interested can find plenty of information. And certainly, John MacArthur's work on this subject is easily accessible online and it's very useful. And he has a lot to say about this subject. But let me describe the character of this charismania a bit. In case you haven't witnessed it, um, there are various manifestations of it. When I was in Tennessee, um, it was manifested to a certain extent by snake handlers, um, people who believe that because of that passage in Mark, Uh, that talks about uh, those who are faithful not being uh, harmed by the bite of a snake. There are those who handle snakes, and they die regularly. Um, And, of course, the answer is because of their lack of faith. If they had enough faith, that wouldn't happen. But uh, it happens, and uh, it happened while I was there several times in various churches. Uh, We stumbled on what I would call a clear manifestation of faith, Chiresmania just the other day was a YouTube broadcast of what appeared to be at the beginning a normal contemporary church service. The pastor was pacing back and forth on the floor level um, and then there's this awkward exchange between him and a man in the front row, sitting on, on the front pew. And the pastor tries to touch the man but an assistant is also pacing the floor while the pastor is gets between him and the man and blocks him from touching him and the pastor acts like well he's just going to wander off and then suddenly when the man who's blocking him sees the pastor walking away turns his back the pastor runs back and touches him over the over the man's shoulder and touches the the, the man's the seated man's shoulder and the man leaps from his seat he scrambles up over the front of the church and jumps up onto the pulpit. So he's standing on the pulpit, not actually standing, he's squatting on the pulpit, Uh, like you might think a chimp would do if he was there. And he rocks back and forth on the pulpit, makes laughing noises and so on. And then he leaps off the pulpit and he runs to the back of the stage, knocking over, if you can imagine, somebody running through here and pushing everything down and running around to the back and disappearing behind our pyramid here. And all of this is going on while the congregation is applauding and shouting and cheering and enjoying what I guess you would call the spectacle. The spectacle. In another scene, a preacher paces about, surrounded by those who are sick or addicted or abused in other ways, and he moves from one to another, touching their foreheads and shouting, the power of the Spirit of God. As I'm sure many of you have seen at one time or another, the person who's touched falls backward into the hands of people waiting for them, and they collapse in a sort of state of unconscious ecstasy. One of the men and women preaching and teaching such things refers to himself, interestingly, as the Holy Spirit's bartender. You come to him and you tell him what kind of help you need from the Holy Spirit, and he dispenses it like a bartender. And that's the way he refers to himself. Um, He's associated with the Laughing Revival and the so-called Toronto Blessing. No offense to the Canadians among us. Now, in all these situations, they're what is referred to as the second blessing, the second blessing of the Holy Spirit, which manifests itself in this context in some out of control behavior and proving, according to those that are involved in it, that the Holy Spirit has taken over and is in control of the individual. Now, even that begs logical explanation So this is the Holy Spirit taking control, and the evidence of the Holy Spirit taking control of me is that I'm completely out of control. And it just doesn't, it doesn't jive. Now, the Bible, and not experience, is really our only infallible rule of faith and practice. As you recall, Paul said to Timothy, and it's a commonly known passage, but it applies in this context In 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And you see there that what, what accomplishes this completeness is the Word of God. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one that applies the Word of God to our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives us the understanding of it. But it is the Word that equips us to worship and serve the Lord. Now, when all of these things, the, the pillar dogmas, the outrageous behavior, all of it, are looked for in the Scripture... They can't be found without wresting the scriptures out of context or just ignoring completely what they teach. It's the only way you can find anything even close to this. Now, if we look at three pre- passages just briefly, these three passages describe and illustrate the work of the Holy Spirit in regards to joy. The first one is John chapter 15, and it's verses 8 through 12. And actually, the whole chapter applies here, but because of time, I'm, I'm reducing it to these verses 8 through 12. Jesus is speaking, and he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, and you can see it there, for what purpose? That my joy may be in you, and that your joy, what be what? May be full, almost full. He doesn't say that, it doesn't say close to being full, but there's a little bit more you need. Now he says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And then he summarizes everything he said up to this point by saying, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now the Savior's motive in speaking to his disciples as he does here is found in verse 11. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And it's even more strongly stated here than than even just we've recognized it as we've read it together. Um, It is that your joy may be filled to the full. That's the idea, that your joy may be filled to the full, crammed in, packed together, permanent, absolute, and complete, all those ideas are in that idea of being full. So there's no implication even in the language used by the Savior for there to be room for something else to be stuffed in there to get really the fullness of joy. No, this will do it, the Lord says. And what is it that leads to this fully satisfied joy? Controlled obedience to his commandments. Not uncontrollable, dashing about, but controlled obedience to his commandments. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not becoming wealthy and thereby righteous. It's not being able to claim things, and then, or name things and then claim them. It's not leaping on the pulpit. It's not laughing uncontrollably. No, it's to love others in what is truly a new and radical way beginning with a household of faith, but it's obedience to his command. And the command is to bring yourself under control and to deal with your natural bias, your natural hate, your natural inclination to selfishness, to bring all of that under the Spirit of God and to love others as you love yourself. And so it's all about control, not loss of control, but being under the control of the Spirit. And it's also important to note that this joy is an allotment. It's not something that can be gained on any other terms. It's given by him. This is my joy that I'm giving to you, so that your joy might be full. George Hutchison says on this passage, Believers, in laying hold on their privileges, ought not to look on their worth or deserving, but on his allowance and what he has purchased and will confer upon them." And that's where this joy comes from. I think any Christian will be careful to see that his or her joys are becoming and not unworthy of Christ. The calm joy of the martyrs, forged by faith in Christ and his love, was far more of a testimony to the Lord than any monkey-like antics Foolish snake handling are questionable knockabout healings. Their determination to die for Christ in quietness and submission to him in praising of his name is what shows true joy. The filled up joy that Jesus speaks of here comes from conscientiously walking according to the word and persevering by his grace in one's faithfulness. And finally here, it's just what it says it is. It's sufficient. It's filled up joy, complete. And as we said, is joy filled to the full. George Hutchison again says, the joy of believers in Christ is in itself a full joy, needing no other carnal joy to be added with it to fill the heart. Now, does this mean that Christians, the Christian's joy is never filled to bursting? and doesn't express itself ever outwardly? Well, of course not. We know that David danced with joy before the Lord. But the truth is that the deeper and the fuller the joy, the greater the awe and the more no outward or human expression seems adequate to express it. That's just the nature of joy. I think we've all found ourselves in circumstances like that. Even in other situations, where we have been rendered so happy that we just can't, we don't. There's nothing we can say. We just have to rest in it and rejoice in it and give thanks for it. And the deeper and the fuller our joy is, the more reverent it is in its nature. This is the gift of God. These are the things that the Lord has done for us. In First Peter chapter one and verses eight and nine. We read, though you have not seen him, Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I like the translation here in the ESV for this reason. It says this joy is inexpressible. So, it's not the kind you can jump up on the pulpit and act like a monkey and express. It's inexpressible. It's so deep that, it, that it's, there's, no, there's no way to make it known. There's no way to, to, to broadcast it except from the contentment and joy and peace of your heart in the Lord and before the Lord. Now, turning to the second passage quickly, we come to Paul's letter to the Galatians in which he famously says this, and this is Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. These are those things which flow from the Spirit, or the root of grace in the heart is the way one puts it. This is what comes out. And it's outrageous to imagine that the joy that is spoken of here as a work of the Holy Spirit would be so out of concert with the other gifts that it would include those things pictured among those carried away with the charismania of our day. Look at the other things listed. They all talk, of all the other things have to do with control and, and patience, self-control, having yourself in order. It's discordant or out of line with the others, each of which describes control and self-discipline. It's preceded in Paul's letter by a list of things that are described as the works of the flesh. And it's in that list that you find fits and you find reference to sensuality and what is drunk-like behavior. As someone said, the works of the flesh tend to deformity, and those that are exercised by the Spirit beautify the life of the believer. And it's true. The works of the flesh deform us, they, they, they change us, they, they distort us, um, but the works of the Spirit beautify the life of anyone who is a believer. And interestingly, he ends this section by saying this, and this is verses 25 through 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If we look in on the demoniac that Jesus healed. We see something interesting, I think, in this context that we can can profit from. So I'm turning to Mark chapter 5 and verses 2 through 5. We read there that when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. And he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now in verse 8, Jesus, confronting this demoniac, says then to him, Come out from the man, or at least to the demon that is possessing him. Come out from the man, you unclean spirit. And now we pick up the story in verse 11, Mark 5:11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there um, on, on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 200, 2,000, excuse me, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there still, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid." They saw this dramatic difference in this man who had been delivered of the demon. Now, at which point in time was this man's behavior most in concert with the works of the flesh? When he was um, unshackable, when he couldn't be restrained, when he was living among the tombs and screaming and hollering? And when is he most in concert with the gifts of the Spirit? Self-control and patience and so on. It's very clear. When he's without the Spirit and under the control of the demons, he's out of control. When he's under the Spirit, he's sitting quietly at Jesus' feet and in such a a dramatic difference that it frightens those who had uh, been herding the swine. So now we take that picture and we superimpose the antics of the monkey man, supposedly moved by the Holy Spirit to uh, leap and run recklessly about the church, was his behavior in concert with the man that Jesus healed, before or after he was under the control of the Holy Spirit. Before, yeah, obviously before. And that brings us to our final passage here this afternoon, Romans chapter 15, which we read, uh, verses 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, it is said, rejoice O Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all peoples extol him. Doesn't that sound like Psalm 98? Just in the spirit, not in direct quote. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And then he ends by saying, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. And again, we find a problem if we're interpreting this joy as, a, as what we see in charismania, where people are out of control, they're screaming, they're hollering, they're, they're agitated, they, they can't get themselves under control. How is that the same with peace, which is quietness and comfort and security? That the God of hope may fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may bound around the room and jump up and down? No, so that you may abound in hope, the hope of the gospel the truth of the word. I don't think this needs much comment. Believing the birth narratives concerning the coming of, Christ, of the Christ child doesn't produce agitation and antics. Faith doesn't lead to outrageous behavior in the sense exhibited in the charismania movement. It produces an unspeakable joy, an undisturbed peace, and a glorious, confident, hope. He alone can fill any heart with joy and peace in believing, or cause it to abandon, to abandon hope, excuse me. And he can do all these things through the power of the Holy Ghost, says Plummer. All excellencies of moral character, though enjoined by God's word, are never effectually wrought in us, but by the power of the Most High. His grace can transform the worst moral character into the image of the heavenly Adam. We can hope for no effectual renovation except by the Holy Ghost, says Halding. And that's the kind of work that the Holy Spirit does that fills the heart with joy. It's interesting that it's only when Adam broke loose from the influence of the Holy Spirit that he began to play the fool not while he was under the influence of that spirit. And back to the scenes that we began with. Throughout the birth narrative of the Christ, joy plays a part. But in every context, it's associated with the idea of the recognition of something that brings faith, that brings relief, that brings peace, and therefore produces joy something that quiets the heart, quiets fears, quiets concerns, and then produces this deep sense of joy. In Isaiah 55, verse 12, the prophet says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Sounds like... Psalm 98, doesn't it? Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. It's the lasting message of the gospel. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us applying that truth to us. that gives us an inexpressible peace. That passes understanding. And that peace doesn't lead to abandon. It leads to a desire to be under the control of that Spirit and to be bound by His Word and to glorify God with our heart. Doesn't mean that we can't sing with joy and gusto. That was great this morning when I said, We singing Joy of the World was great. Yes, and what followed was a blessing too. And we're free to do that. But once it crosses what is becoming to the work of the Holy Spirit and begins to look more like the works of the flesh, it is the work of the flesh and not the work of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to think about these things. We have a very joyous time ahead as we remember and celebrate and rejoice in the birth of our Redeemer. But, Lord, when it comes down to it, this is such a holy, such a gracious, such a wonderful thing. That, Lord, our hearts respond in awe and reverence and love to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would receive our joy, a joy born of the Spirit, as a testimony, Lord, of our gratitude to you for your goodness and your love towards us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.